Hello, this is Rabbi Rob Doberson, and welcome to this edition of Wrestling and Dreaming. And before I get to the main subject that I want to discuss in this episode of the podcast, I want to share with you a thought. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the line from Fiddler on the Roof, is there a blessing for the czar? And the answer is, of course, may God bless and keep the czar far away from us. Well, it's interesting that there is, in fact, in Jewish tradition, a bracha, a blessing that one says when one sees a head of state or somebody of great civil authority. And it's a fascinating blessing. It begins with the words, Baruch Adonai, blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, Shanatan mikvodo levasar vadam. Literally, who gives from God's own glory to human beings. Basar vadam, which literally means flesh and blood, and is often used as a description of human beings in Jewish tradition. Blessed are you, O God, who rules the universe, who grants mikvodo, who gives of God's own glory to human beings. What does it mean? Well, I find it a fascinating blessing. First of all, what it says is that human beings need leadership. Human beings need to have people take charge and take responsibility. Otherwise, we have anarchy. Now, hopefully, God willing, those leaders are always fair, just, and trying to lead people in a moral and ethical way but there's the idea that God, in essence, hands over the leadership of the people for secular matters to secular leaders. And that's the way the tradition would read. And therefore, those leaders deserve respect, obviously, as long as they're leading in a fair and, and just way. But it also points out the words basar vadam, flesh and blood, which reminds us that our leaders, even if they have some sense of of honor or 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 um, or glory in some way associated with them are human beings, and they should be judged as human beings as well, and realize that they are in fact flesh and blood human beings, with failings, with limitations, etc. And so we don't treat our leaders as God, but we recognize their role in a in a way as being the kind of leadership in a secular way that we assume God has in a cosmic and a global way. I mention all this, of course, in recognition of the, the death of Queen Elizabeth II and the idea that, in fact, many people are venerating and, and, and honoring this woman as appropriate as being a woman of great class and of great stature and of longevity in her role and therefore leading her people and being a figure in the world that leads people through, has led people through very difficult times. Of course, there are questions about her failings, her weaknesses, the weaknesses of the policies of the, of the British government. Those need to be discussed. They need to be recognized. But we need to remember that our leaders are Basar Vadam. They are flesh and blood. And that they deserve, when they are doing their best, to be honored, to be honored as human beings, not as gods, not as perfection. Uh, I certainly am not one who has followed the Queen's career very, very closely, but always have recognized the fact that there was a certain amount of stability and a certain amount of presence of her uh, of it, in her role. 
and uh, certainly she was queen for as long as I remember, became queen before I was born. And so it is a little bit of an adjustment to, the, to see now um, King Charles III, but to look back on all of our leaders and to say they deserve respect for the responsibilities they take on or are put on their shoulders, but they are in the end Basarvadan, they are in the end human beings. And we respect for them for their human qualities when they observe those to the best. And certainly uh, there are so many aspects of Queen Elizabeth's personality and her presence which deserve praise. So may her memory be for a blessing. I wanna now switch gears, so to speak, and talk about something relating to the high holidays and relating to the concept of tshuva, of repentance. And it's a very simple thought but I believe a very important one and one I want you to think about quite a bit. And in context, I just want to mention one of my favorite books in terms of on, in my library, and I'm sure I speak for many, uh, the book by Abraham Joshua Heschel called God in Search of Man. Uh, it's a philosophy of Judaism. It, 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 is, it has some fantastic thoughts to it, some really thought-provoking sections to it, certainly. But to me, it's just that title that really gets me. And the idea that, as, as Heschel described, that God is searching for human beings. God says to Adam in the Garden of Eden, Ayeka, where are you? And that, that, that question, Heschel says, still echoes in our minds, and it applies to each of us, as God asks, where are you? And that is really the essence of tshuva, the essence, essence of the idea of repentance that we ask ourselves, where are we in our lives? And are we responding to what God wants from us? In that context, let me share with you a brief Devar Torah based upon last week's Torah portion, Parshat Shoftim. And in that Torah portion, in Parshat Shoftim, we read a law called the Law of Adim Zoamim, the Law of Conspiring Witnesses. The Torah law, which is found in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, goes like this. If an individual, they're talking about one, but witnesses came in pairs in rabbinic tradition and even referred to in the Torah, so it's usually referred to in the plural, edim somamim, conspiring witnesses. If witnesses come to testify about another individual that they, in fact, had committed a crime, and it is proven that they have lied, it's proven that they have sworn falsely, then according to the Torah, they receive the punishment that would have gone to the individual whom they were accusing. So, in its most extreme sense, and again, whenever we talk about capital punishment in Jewish tradition, we have to keep in mind that it was very, very rarely enacted. But in principle, if two witnesses came and accused somebody else of murder, and it turned out that that accusation was false, they would, in fact, receive capital punishment rather than the murderer. But the question that comes up is, how do we know if they really purposely misled the judges, if they purposely witnessed against an individual and they knew that it was false witnessing, or if, in fact, it was just a mistake? They just made a mistake. They thought they saw what they saw. They, they, it was a case of mistaken identity, whatever it might be. The Mishnah in Masechet Makot, in the Tractate of Makot, 
chapter 1, Mishnah 4, presents a very interesting distinction of how one determines that witnesses are, in fact, Adim Zomamim, are conspiring witnesses rather than just made a mistake. And here's what they say. Let's assume that witnesses A and B are accusing a person C of, in fact, having murdered somebody else. According to the Mishnah, if after A and B make their testimony, somebody comes along, other witnesses come along and say, wait a minute, how could you possibly have seen what you said you saw? C, the person you're accusing, or even, in fact, D, the person who was killed, either one of them was with us at the time that you claim that this murder take place, took place. In that particular case, they are not considered conspiring witnesses. If other witnesses come along and say, you couldn't have seen what you said you saw because this supposed murder, this alleged murderer or the individual who was murdered was with us at the time you claim you saw it, then it's in fact considered to be just a mistake, which is serious enough, but they're not considered Adim Zomamim conspiring witnesses and therefore subject to the punishment they would have given to the person whom they accused. So what makes a person an aid zomeim? What makes people conspiring witnesses? The Mishnah goes on. If, in fact, witnesses come forward and say, you can't possibly have seen what you said you saw because imanu hayitam, you were with us someplace else at the time you claimed to have saw the murder. Then they're considered conspiring witnesses. As the, as the um, Mishnah says, they aren't considered conspiring witnesses until they, in fact, say something about themselves, which is not true. Think about that. Think about the implications of that statement. If you say something wrong about somebody else, that's bad. That's wrong. But if you say something wrong about yourself, if you lie about yourself, that is even worse. That, that is more extreme. So a person can make a mistake in identifying someone and not be held completely responsible, but they cannot lie about themselves. They can't say they were someplace where they weren't. I think there's really no more basic statement about our responsibility as we approach the high holy days and as we consider it in the context of, as Heschel spoke about, God saying, where are you? Mistaking someone else, getting the facts wrong, happens to all of us. It's a serious matter, but it happens to all of us. But what is even more serious is when we get facts about ourselves wrong. What is essential is, as we approach tshuva, that we know where we are, know where we stand, and know who we are, and are honest to ourselves about ourselves. As we stand at the time of tshuva, let us commit ourselves to telling the truth to ourselves, about ourselves, so that we, in fact, can improve in the year to come. Until next time, thank you.